Welcome to The Rancher's Voice, presented by the Montana Stocker Association. I'm Jay Bodner, MSGA's Executive Vice President. And I'm Rayleigh Honeycutt, Director of Natural Resources. Join us for conversations surrounding policy, the legislature, and issues that matter most to ranching families in Montana. Welcome to this week's episode. This week we're going to touch a little bit on a review of some of the MSGA priority bills at the legislature. We are getting toward the end of the session um, and we are focusing a lot on uh, finishing up our critical bills, but then also looking at what some of the study bills are. Uh, we also do have an interview with Karen Bud Fallon, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Biden administration 30 by 30 proposal, which um, us in agriculture are following very closely. We have a number of concerns with that. And so um, Karen is going to share a lot of her thoughts with us. So um, it's a great opportunity to list to listen to a real expert. Yes. And as you uh, listen, remember to subscribe to The Rancher's Voice, follow us on social, like, share, and comment on each episode, and email your questions to Kenny, K-E-N-I, at mtbeef.org. So we are going to jump in and talk about uh, what's happening at the legislature. Rumor has it that we will be wrapped up this week. So it's looking promising. I saw a legislator posted on Facebook. So it must if it's Facebook official, it must be happening. <laughs> so uh, there are a few things that are happening. Of course, there are bills that still need to be heard. There's some study bills being introduced that are having hearings. Uh, but really, it's all dependent upon all of the budget bills and having their final conferences and uh, votes. And so as those happen throughout this week, uh, as soon as those get done, we would anticipate the uh, legislature to sine die and uh, gavel out for the rest of the session. So we'll see. We'll keep you posted and uh, watch on Facebook as we kind of have that information rolling out in real time. A couple of the MSGA priority bills that we wanted to highlight for you this week are um, first, House Bill 554. You've heard us chat about that quite a bit. This is the bill that would require legislative approval for national heritage areas. I am happy to report as of Monday morning that bill was passed by the legislature um, after having to go having gone back to the House for an amendment, passed the legislature on Monday morning, and will be headed to Governor Gianforte's desk in the very near future, which is very exciting. I know many people um, have voiced their support of this bill, as many people are worried about what um, am, uh, ramifications would be if a national heritage area did come into our state. So keep... Uh, very excited for that to pass. Uh, the second bill that's a priority bill for us is House Bill 660, which would be increasing funding for the Made in Montana program. Uh, that bill was heard last week in Senate Finance and Claims, and during that hearing, it was amended uh, from the money rather than... Rather than the money coming from the general fund, it was amended to come out of the Big Sky Economic Development Fund uh, with the amendments that bill passed out of finance and claims with uh, large support and will be heard on the Senate floor this week for its second and third reading uh, and really excited for uh, that to continue moving on as well. The last bill I wanted to update you on is House Bill 306. This is in regards to the Fish and Game Commission's uh, structure. It 
went to a a Senate conference committee last week uh, where the conference committee ended up amending that bill. Uh, The language had read two landowners and the committee amended it to say three landowners. It passed out of committee and uh, is in its final um, hearings as well. So excited to see that we uh, were able to get an additional landowner increased back into uh, that bill. Yeah, great. <clears throat> also, just want to touch a little bit on the veterinary diagnostic lab and give you a quick update. So that is included in both House Bill 14, the, the long range uh, funding infrastructure package, and then also in House Bill 632. And that is uh, the bill that will direct a lot of the federal ARPA money that um, is coming back from the federal government. So it's in both of those uh, funding packages. We are I think that it's in a pretty good position to actually get that bill uh, to get the lab funded and uh, potentially built. So we're we're pretty, once again, pretty excited about the movement we're seeing in the veterinary diagnostic lab. I remember uh, sitting at the beginning of session thinking, well, we'll just talk about it this session and next session, maybe we'll get it. So to have it in two funding mechanisms is really exciting for, I think, the industry as a whole. Yeah, and I think it did. It did put us in a pretty good position originally just uh, with that we were going to bring some money to the table to help fund that. Um, uh, Potentially, this could be funded strictly out of just uh, government dollars, too. So um, we'll we'll see as this does get finalized and uh, hopefully the next this week, uh, potentially. Um, In addition to that, uh, we have been working very closely with the legislature to put some additional dollars that would be about 200,000 into uh, House Bill 2. That's the the main funding bill for the government. And within that, that would go toward the Department of Livestock's budget for the CIS program or the Cooperative Interstate Shipment Program. Um, And just as a reminder for that program, we've we've talked a lot about meat, meat meatpacking opportunities for producers in Montana. So this CIS program, it does promote the expansion of business opportunities for state inspectors meat establishments. So uh, we think that there's an opportunity there to uh, continue to build on uh, what we have in Montana and provide more opportunity for uh, not only uh, these state inspected plants, but uh, individual producers. So um, we're um, pretty thankful that that is moving forward right now too. Um, in addition to that, bison, um, we have seen some positive movements. So we have House Bill 302. That was the allowed county commissioners to have uh, a say in bison relocation into their county. And then House Bill 318, this would clarify the definition of bison and what a wild bison is. So both of these bills have passed the legislature and they will be headed to the governor's desk. So um, there has been a lot of effort over a lot of years to get these bison bills moving. And so we actually have a great opportunity now to get both of these bills signed. Yeah, so uh, as the week kind of wraps up, we'll be able to give a really thorough kind of briefing on where the legislature lands um, in our podcast next week and excited to see a lot of the bills and priorities that our MSGA members have brought forward uh, having positive movement and uh, many of them headed to the governor's desk, which is exciting. It is. So now I'd like to introduce our interviewee for the week. We have with us Karen Bud Fallon, 
And I think um, Karen is uh, very well known, I think, within our industry. But for those that do not know her, uh, she is an attorney um, down in Wyoming, um, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And they have um, uh, the Bud Fallon uh, law firm there. She's very well versed in a lot of federal land issues, um, certainly involved in many of the issues that deal with um, ranch families. They have a ranch themselves. She's been involved really uh, pretty significantly in the Public Lands Council. I've known her for a number of years, and she's been a real resource as we work through issues at the Public Lands Council um, and uh, within that organization. She was also within the Department of Interior within the last uh, administration, and it was great to have a very strong ally in that administration as we kind of uh, advocated for ranchers and uh, and those that use uh, that are administered within the Department of Interior. So with that, uh, welcome, Karen. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody, and we have a special guest with us today. We have Karen Bud Fallon. Um, I think anybody that has dealt with any natural resource issue um, is familiar with uh, Karen Bud Fallon and their law firm. Um, she has a, a great history of working on behalf of farmers and ranchers. And Karen, maybe just for some of those folks that uh, haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, uh, give a little background on yourself. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate getting to talk to Montana Stock Growers Association. As Jay said, my name is Karen Bud Fallon. I grew up on a fifth generation working cattle ranch in Big Piney, Wyoming, which is about 150 miles north of Rock Springs and 150 miles south of Jackson. It was one of those places that my fifth great grandfather was trailing cattle and got stuck there in the winter and decided to stay. And it's one of the coldest places in the nation. So every year during calving, we think, why did you pick big tiny Wyoming to stay and try to raise a cow-calf herd? I got my undergraduate degree and my law degree from the University of Wyoming. Uh, when people ask me why I picked being a cowboy lawyer, I tell them it's because my dad decided that my sisters and I really needed to help with the ranching operation. And he said to stay in the ranching business, he needed a lawyer, a vet and a banker. And my sisters and I went, okay, daddy. And, and that's what he got out of the deal. So I've been, I've been working on livestock issues and representing farmers and ranchers and private property owners for, I hate to say it, 30 years now. And I just got back from a two-year appointment for President Trump, working at Department of Interior, specifically dealing with issues regarding the National Park Service, Endangered Species Act, uh, wildlife refuges. And I was on the writing team for the Council of Environmental Quality Rules on NEPA. And I am very happy to be back in Wyoming. Well, thank you, and uh, we did appreciate your efforts in D.C. It was it was a, a welcome appointment when you when you got selected for that position because it's nice to have a person with your knowledge and background in the Department of Interior, and we're certainly seeing a lot of new faces there nowadays, and uh, nobody necessarily that has that 
ag and ranching background. And um, I think that's going to be sorely missed when we start to dive into many of these issues that, that we are going to be facing over the next few years. I would agree with that. It was interesting. I met a lot of really fine people working for Department of Interior. But when I would talk about the realities of a cow-calf operation or owning land in Wyoming, I have to tell you, very few people understood that concept. And so a lot of the reason I think they asked me to go back was because I've got a working knowledge of the difficulties of owning land, of, of being a small business, of living in a state where the federal government owns so much of the property. And I think that gave me a really unique perspective. And, and you can be a fine person and have great ideas, but having a legitimate working knowledge just gives you a whole better background, I think, to work at Interior. Yeah. We would definitely agree with that. And Jay mentioned there's a lot of new faces back there in DC, but we are now seeing that there is a lot of new policy coming out of the new administration as well. And really, we wanted to chat with you um, about President Biden's executive order on tackling climate change and specifically uh, the 30 by 30 uh, plan. So I know this has been a conversation, it's, it's in the news and in ag publications quite a bit recently, but uh, for folks that who, who may not be that familiar with the plan, can you just give us a 30,000 foot high level um, overview of what 30 by 30 is? Sure, so 30 by 30 was an executive order specifically dealing with climate change that President Biden signed on January, 27th of 2021. And the executive order overall view is, is that there may not be a crisis at the border between us and Mexico, but there is a climate crisis. And so he signed this executive order that affects every branch of government on how to actually deal with what he calls the climate crisis. And that includes everything from, from defense, national security, foreign and domestic policy, farming, ranching, oil and gas, coal, everything is affected by this executive order. The, it's been a lot in the news about the war on coal. Um, this 30 by 30 plan revives that. It's been a lot in the news about how there is a pause on oil and gas leasing. That is all part of 3030. And specifically what I was looking at was how would this affect agriculture, whether it's farming, whether it's ranching, whether it's grazing permits on federal lands. And so my focus on reviewing it was how does this affect agriculture in the United States? And it's got, it's got some pretty profound effects. Now you've got to remember as an executive order, this is not a rule of law. So the order doesn't mandate anything, but it tells the federal agencies that when they issue decisions, they have to consider certain parts of climate change. Now, the one that I focused on for this first installment, and I'll actually be writing more about the 30 by 30 because it's a very long executive order and it touches a lot of agriculture, 
The first that I wrote is the land acquisition program. And under the executive order, the concern was that only 12% of the land right now owned by the federal government is, is protected from climate change. And the goal under the executive order is to acquire or stop use of another 440 million acres of land to protect from climate change. 440 million acres, if you're trying to picture that in your head, is twice the size of Texas. And so the executive order directs that by 2030, which is eight years from now, the federal government needs to own or stop additional use on 440 million acres. And so that was the part that I focused on. Um, in my next segment, I'm gonna focus on USDA programs because one of the things the executive order talks about is, is farmers voluntarily doing things that like, like no-till farming or that kind of thing that, that are considerate of climate change. My concern with that is, is y'all remember the 65 mile an hour speed limit and how it, I remember that as a kid and driving across Wyoming at 65 miles an hour is really difficult because there's a long way between places. But that was also a quote voluntary program because Department of Transportation said that unless you mandate a lower speed limit, you don't get highway transportation funds and the court ruled that was voluntary. So my concern with getting all this acreage for farmers and including it is what, how voluntary is that gonna be? Because voluntary with the federal government does not mean the same as a voluntary agreement with your next door neighbor. So that's part of it. Another part of it is a concern with the regulation that we wrote at Department of Interior giving local governments a very big say in critical habitat designation. This order takes aim at the local government involvement in that. So, so the order has a lot of overall general goals in it. And I think that agriculture needs to be really aware of what those goals are so that they can participate and understand what could be happening to them in the next four years. Great, Karen, you kind of mentioned as you talked a little bit about the land acquisition piece. And so now we have the Land and Water Conservation Fund, who's uh, certainly well-funded and a high percentage of that is kind of mandated going toward land acquisitions. And so do these two pieces kind of fit together with the 30 by 30 and, and um, maybe that goal of land acquisition or even maybe mandating um, easements, uh, how do you see that maybe playing out? Um, so the land and, and the land and water acquisition, but, or the land and water conservation fund has been around for oh, a long time, maybe 20 years. It's been quite a while, but it was never permanently funded by Congress. And there was always an argument because the Land and Water Conservation Fund can be used to acquire private land. But depending on whether you're 
Republican or Democrat or how you feel about acquiring more land by the federal government, there's never been permanent funding. So last year under the Great American Outdoors Act, Congress passed permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And I'm gonna have to put on my glasses because I can't read the number and I, I do periods and commas, I don't do numbers. So, so the Land and Water Conservation Fund will every year have an appropriation of $900 million. And one of the things, like I said, they can do with land and water conservation money is acquire private property for the federal government. Now, when, when we were at Department of Interior, one of the things that we worked on was making sure that the federal government was not harming counties and states by acquiring more land. Because as you know, when the federal government owns property, there's no property taxes paid on it. There's no income tax paid on it. People aren't employed by working on, on the federal land, particularly under the 3030, because under Biden's 30 by 30, no use can occur if you're going to protect that property for climate change. And so during the Trump administration, we passed a requirement that said that if the government was going to acquire more land, it had to have the agreement of the states and the counties that were involved in that land acquisition. And we thought that way, if the government is gonna acquire a whole bunch more land, say in a county where the government already owns 75% of the county, that is gonna have a very negative economic impact. And we wanted the counties to be involved. But what Biden has done is now eliminated the requirement of state and local government agreement for federal land purchase in the counties. And I think that is going to be, I mean, in some counties, it's gonna be fine. The county is gonna welcome it. Um, some counties are gonna hate it because it's gonna really harm their tax base. But now there is no longer a mandatory county voice. And, and I think that is a huge problem. I, I have always believed, and I believe most, your listeners believe that the government closest to the people is the best form of government, that they understand their county, that they know what they need as a county. And, and that philosophy um, does not seem to be present in, in the new administration. So I have a couple different questions kind of swirling around in my head. So I'm going to start off with this may be somewhat of a loaded question, but you mentioned the 440 million acres that would need to be, you know, acquired or put under this plan to meet the goal. In your opinion, is that an, is that even attainable? Congress is going to have to appropriate a lot of money to be able to attain this goal. I mean, the 900 million in the Land and Water Conservation Fund isn't gonna come anywhere close to being able to buy 440 million acres in the next eight years. So I'm not, I'm not sure that it's attainable. One of the things that really worries me, especially for the Western states like Montana, is that we already have a significant portion of federal lands, forest service land, BLM land, park service land, that's considered multiple use. So you can graze cattle on it. You've got, you can cut timber, you can um, 
do oil and gas and all that stuff. And in the, but right now under 3030, only 12% of that federal land protects biodiversity. And in the Biden view, there can be absolutely no use to protect biodiversity. So I'm what I'm really concerned with is that to get to this 440 million acres, one of the things that the Biden administration is gonna do is start way restricting multiple uses on the federal land, such as your livestock grazing permits, to be able to get toward this 440 million acre goal. They can do that without spending any congressional money. And, and I think that should be a big concern because we know that well-managed livestock operations on federal lands is absolutely environmentally friendly and protective and protects from catastrophic wildfire. And there's a million reasons to allow grazing on federal lands, but even well-managed grazing under the Biden view does not contribute to biodiversity. So those uses will have to stop. And, and I think along those lines, we certainly understand that in many of these Western states and, and certainly Montana and Wyoming in particular, that many of these ranches that hold these federal grazing leases, it, it's a critical part of the operation. And without that grazing, many of these ranchers are probably at risk of simply going out of business, which um, will have a tremendous impact on not only states, but agriculture in, in general. And that is a pretty concerning um, potential for this plan to, to produce, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And it was interesting when I was nominated to go back to Department of Interior, they were, the, my family ranch has BLM and Forest Service grazing permits because that ranch in Big Piney can't survive without those permits. There's, it's too cold. We don't have enough land. I mean, your ranchers all have that same story. And so I was explaining to the administration that I can't just give up the permits because that would require we sell the ranch. There's just no two ways around it. And I don't know that even in the Trump administration, I got people to understand that connection between the private property and the grazing permits and how you you can't have a viable ranch operation in so many Western states without those permits. And, and if they didn't understand it in the Trump administration where they were favorable to what we do out here for a living, it makes me really nervous in a Biden administration that they simply don't understand this connection and they don't understand that if you don't have if you don't have grazing permits, you don't have a ranch. And in Sublet County, where I grew up, it is very pretty. I mean, big mountains. We've got the Wyoming Range on one side and the Wind River Range on the other side. And so we could sell that private land, but they're going to put houses on it. And how much of biodiversity and protection of the ecosystem are you going to have with, you know, 40-acre ranchettes? on all that land. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense, but unless you're, unless you're involved in it, unless you've grown up that way, or unless you've really educated yourself, people just don't understand that concept. 
So do you, do you feel that private property um, is key in hitting these goals? Or as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a timing thing. If we volunteer our private property too soon, that may put us at more risk than not. So where do you, where do you think private property plays into this mix? I'm really worried that, well, let me, let me say it this way. And I hate to sound like an alarmist, but I'm concerned that if we start volunteering to give up use, if we start volunteering private property, I mean, there's no give on the other side. It's not like we can come together as a community and say, okay, how about if we all collectively give you, you know, 10,000 acres somewhere that you guys will go away and leave the rest of us alone. That's not how it's going to work. I mean, I think that I'm really, really concerned that there's not going to be much give here. And I understand that a, a private landowner has got the right to sell to whoever the heck he wants. And if, and if my neighbor wants to sell to the federal government or do a long-term conservation easement, that's your property. I can't say anything. And I completely support that. But I also think you have to think about what is it going to do to the counties and the tax base? What is it going to do to the state and the tax base? And, and I firmly believe that America provides food source for the world. And it concerns me if we would take land out of production. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to get our food from a foreign country. I don't want to get it from, you know, our beef from somewhere else. Truth is, I'd rather have you buy, you want to buy some really good steaks, you should call my husband and I, we can help you out. But it, it just, I don't know that there's anything that we can give. Karen, I'd like to maybe pivot a little. You mentioned early on about critical habitat, but even looking at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so recently they did come out with a decision not to move forward on grizzly bear delisting, you know, and even though that we've met the recovery goals for years and years and years, and um, how, how do you see that issue playing out in the near future? Or will we see any movement in that or any of these delisting opportunities? Um, the truth is I'm a little, I am worried about that. If you look at the way we delisted wolves, and you think about how that came about, what the Fish and Wildlife Service did initially was just delist wolves in Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana based on their state plans. And then when Trump was in office, we were really hard on delisting de the rest of the population of wolves, except for, for red wolves in the very Eastern United States and Mexican wolves on the Arizona and Mexico border. With grizzly bear, the latest five-year plan didn't look at pockets where the bears had recovered like Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. It looked at grizzly bears across the United States and said that you haven't met recovery goals for every state in the nation for grizzly bears. And if that's the way they're going to view grizzly recovery, I am very worried that we're not gonna be able to get them recovered or get them delisted. 
So one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about is how could we structure a petition to do a distinct population segment for Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, the places where we have met and far exceeded grizzly numbers to try to force the Fish and Wildlife Service Instead of looking across the board at the whole United States, look at these areas where they've recovered and turn the management through delisting back to the states. Because it's as I said earlier, in my view, these species are best managed by the state that they're in because every state is different, the land is different, populations are different. And I think the state game and fish are in a much better position to manage these animals than is the federal government with a across the board, one size fits all plan, which is the way fish and wildlife is looking at it now. Yeah, and we would agree um, 100%. And I know there has been some legislation introduced to, um, um, to actually delist them in, in Congress, but we know that that, that uh, <laughs> legislation is going to be yeah. with a lot of opposition. Yes. So Karen, kind of as we wrap up, uh, based off of, you know, your experience that you've had in DC and you being, um, you know, from Wyoming and a ranching family, are there other topics or other issues um, that we should, uh, our, rancher, our ranchers should be keeping top of mind as we kind of look at what this new administration is beginning to roll out and, and legislation that's coming down the pipeline? I think there's a couple of things. Um, one of the things, if you're looking at the federal lands um, issues, resource management plans are going to be key. And I would make sure that, that your local governments are ready and willing and totally participating in those. If you look at the regulations that we did from the Council of Environmental Quality um, for the new NEPA regs, which applies to every major federal action, we added additional processes for local governments to be involved in those decisions. And so I would really push on your local governments to say, you know, you can describe the tax base, you can describe the socioeconomics, you know the environment better than the federal government. Even if the federal government is completely well-intentioned, they don't understand what it's like to live in Laramie County, Wyoming, or you know, where your rural ranches are. And so that's the first thing is I would really gin up my local governments to be involved. Um, I think one of the other things that you should look at uh, is, is one of the things that Trump said is that I'm not gonna do things by executive order. We are gonna do rulemaking, which means that Biden administration has to undo what we did through rulemaking. They can't just, they can't just say, oh, you know, sign an executive order, stroke the pen, change it all around. That was fully intentional on our part. So, so I would really watch those new rulemakings that are coming out. Um, the Biden administration has asked the courts to, to send the CEQ rules on NEPA back to CEQ for a further review. That will have to be through a public process. I'm sure there will be a lot of, of news and articles about that, but we have to be involved. We've, you've got to make your, your voices known on rulemaking, which 
I think is going to be critical. And I think you're going to see a lot of that coming down the pike as, as we move through the next four years. Well, I think those are some great tips and um, certainly um, appreciate your thoughts on that because I think it is important for our folks to make sure that um, us as organizations and individuals, we stay abreast of that so we can participate and make sure that we do get those comments submitted and, and be uh, on the front lines of participating in that so we don't um, you know, have some of those potential harmful rules coming forward. So I would just like to once again, thank Karen uh, for joining us today. I think uh, for all our listeners, you know that she is a wealth of information and has great experience with protecting agriculture. It was certainly shown today and, and through her experiences, uh, many positions that she's held, um, not only in private practice, but within the government. So um, Karen, once again, I'd like to just thank you for joining us today. And, and it's been um, certainly uh, beneficial on our part to, to be able to visit with you today. Thank you. I would be happy to visit with you anytime. Um, agriculture is the greatest, absolutely the greatest profession in the world, even better than being a lawyer. And, and I just want to encourage your people to be proud of what they're doing to stand up for their farms and ranches. And I thank organizations like Montana Stock Growers for really being on the front lines and educating people and being involved in these issues. Well, once again, we'd like to thank uh, Karen Bud Fallon for joining us this week. Um, as you heard, she is certainly an expert when it comes to a number of these issues. And we very much appreciate her thoughts. And, and as we look at the 30 by 30 proposal and, and how the potential impacts are going to be to uh, ranchers and agriculture in Montana and across the West. And so it's nice to have somebody of her breadth and knowledge that uh, can look at that and review that. And uh, we're glad that she's on our team. Definitely. And we'd like to thank you all for joining us as well. So make sure to continue to subscribe to The Rancher's Voice. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And make sure to like, share, and comment on each episode. Uh, we hope you have a great week. And thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.